make you feel when you have to wait on something? When there's silence, when there's pause, when there's space, when it, when it seems like there's nothing happening, right? I mean, how many of you are honestly going, okay, you're there. You know, Bob started to applaud, like, what, what, are you, what are you waiting for? I mean, how many of you honestly thought, and this is going to feed back, I can, I can tell. How many of you honestly thought something's wrong? We're, we're waiting for something. Yeah, exactly. Um, how many of you kind of tried to sneak a peek over your shoulder? Like, okay, media booth, did you miss something? Sound booth, is something not, I mean, anybody? Yeah, well, yeah you're like, what, what, what's going on? I would guess that, that most of us, whenever we're experiencing something like that, uh, we, have, we have these different emotions. Can you believe that it was only 60 seconds from the time I touched the stage until I started talking? That 60 seconds seemed like forever. It did for me, too, with 200 eyes, you know, pairs of eyes staring back at me up here going, like, come on. You're, you're going, Craig, come on, you, you missed your cue. It, it's time. We're waiting. I would venture to say that, that within you, there were all sorts of emotions. I would also venture to say that the emotions that you weren't experiencing at that point were emotions like peace and calm and happiness and joy and relaxation. Instead, you're probably getting kind of fidgety, right? Anxious. Just that, that doubt of what's going on. What, what, are we do, what are we doing? Come on. Let's go. Time's ticking. Lunch is coming, right? We, we have this clock within us that anytime we wait, we believe that something is wrong. Waiting never spawns positive emotions inside of us. Think about it. If you're driving down the road and you hit traffic, are you happy about that? No, because you have to wait. And we immediately assume something is wrong. Either there was an accident or someone had a flat tire or the police had someone pulled over or, or something, right? You go to, to Target and you try to find the shortest line or you try to pause for just a moment to try to select which line is going to move the fastest. And then you get in that line and you gauge yourself as to whether or not you chose wisely because you don't want to wait any longer than you have to. And you have such emotions in your head like, if it takes too long, okay, what broke? Is that person new? Are they being trained? They should really have more checkers because I don't want to wait, right? I mean, right? That's the way we live. That, that's, that's what we think. We associate waiting with mistakes, waiting with, with glitches. We are trained in our society and in our culture and by our pace of life that waiting, delay, man, that means something is dreadfully wrong. And we don't know what to do with ourselves. We start looking around. Checking the bulletin, staring. What's going on this morning? This, this idea of waiting for something that's beyond our control is precisely where we find ourselves in day six. We're studying the, the, death, the life, the death, and the life again of Jesus. And we've been trying to take the, the Holy Week and look at it day by day and look at the detail as to what we're supposed to learn. And in day six, here's what we find. We find... God, we find Jesus, who has spent the last three and a half years of his life traveling throughout the region, teaching people, uh, showing people the way to live, uh, kind of uh, uprooting the traditions, and he's, he's doing miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He is 
he's blessing food and, and it becomes lots more food. He's, he is making the blind see and causing the deaf to hear. He's doing all this stuff. And this Jesus, who, who can endure just about anything, can do just about anything, he's captured, he's put on trial, he's crucified, he's dead. And they put him in a tomb, they roll the stone in front of him, and Jesus is gone. And at this point in the story, the, the melody that we've been talking about, the story and the life of Jesus, is very similar to the alto, which is our part. They're very, very similar at, at this point in the story. Look at John chapter 19, verse 40. It'll be on the screen behind me. It says, taking Jesus' body, the two of them, and the two of them that they're talking about in context is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Those are the two guys that, that they're talking about at this point. They wrapped it with, with the spices, the strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. That happened at the end of day five, after Jesus was crucified, what we talked about last week. And, and what I find interesting is, day six, there's no movies made of day six. There's nothing exciting that really happens on day six. No one ever reads through the, the life and death and life again of Jesus and on day six go, yes, that's the most exciting and the most intriguing part of the story. Because there's really nothing there. It's very plain. It's very common. It's very ordinary. Matthew records for us the only details we have of day six. It says in Matthew chapter 27, the next day, the one after preparation day, Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, and referring to Jesus as the deceiver, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And what I find interesting about that is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they remembered what Jesus said. Jesus spoke in figurative language to them and they got it, whereas the disciples, Jesus told them directly. And they didn't seem to get it. It's just interesting how sometimes God makes things very plain to us and we just miss it. Other than that account that Matthew gives us, nothing else is written. We don't know anything else. And yet, without day six, the Easter message, the story, the, the, the resurrection, it, it can't happen on day seven without day six. Without day six, you can't hear what God wants you to hear. You can't allow God to do within you what God wants to do within you. There's something in day six that God wants us to see. There's something that, some lesson that we, that we need to experience. Because before the resurrection can happen on day seven, someone had to die. Jesus died on day five. But that leaves us with this very simple story of day six. That's plain. That's ordinary. And it, it just kind of sounds like maybe something that happens when someone we love dies. They prepare the body, they put it in a tomb, they close the casket, so to speak, and... It's pretty plain. It's pretty simple. 
since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. No flowery descriptions there. No professional mourners here. It's just very, very simple. He died. They buried him. The end. But there's more here. There's more to the story than that. And I find myself rushing through this part of the story all the time. Don't you? I mean, whenever you read the story of Jesus, you, you don't spend time on day six. You, you don't spend time in this emotional context of the story. And yet today, I'm going to challenge you that, that we do that together for a few minutes. That we put ourselves right here. We, we try to envision and, and empathize with what Joseph of Arimathea, what Nicodemus, what the disciples, what Mary, what everyone was feeling in that day, in that time. Because Jesus was gone. His body was there in the tomb, but he was gone. And you know that feeling. If you've ever lost someone close to you, you know that feeling. That which gave the body life is gone, and it just is empty, and you don't know what to do. It's pretty ordinary. It's pretty plain. And if you can, I want you to just think about and feel that for just a minute. Because that is where the disciples were. That's where his followers were. The mental and emotional context of day six is, is that. And we would need to remember that there are some vibrant and, and vivid and, and heartfelt emotions here. It's, it's full of passion. It's full of disappointment. It's full of not understanding. And all this stuff is happening. There's this emptiness, this numbness, this vacancy that they're all experiencing because Jesus is gone. It's day six. There's nothing that they can do. And day six is all about dealing with those emotions and, and dealing with the fact that Jesus had died. Day six, it's all about waiting. It's all about waiting. But we don't like to wait. But we have to wait. Because day six forces us to contemplate one thing that, that's pretty, pretty big. It forces us to contemplate the sovereignty of God. And basically, the sovereignty of God is that God does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants to do it. That, that's God, that he's sovereign, and, and he chooses to do that. Sovereignty is, is when God knows what God is doing, and God knows what God is up to, and we have to trust that God knows what God is doing, that God knows what God is up to, because we don't. We certainly don't get it. We don't understand, because we're stuck in day six, when nothing makes sense. So let me ask you this question. Where are you in your life, in your walk with God, where are you stuck in day six? Where are you stranded there? Where do you feel like you are experiencing a, a dead or an absent, a silent Jesus? I'm not just talking about when you pray and your prayers don't get answered the way you want them to. Okay, This, this is deeper than that. It, it, it's more meaningful than that. I, I'm talking about the time that, that you're waiting on God to really show up inside yourself. You're waiting on God to come alive inside of you. That little part within you that, that you can't quite reach and you really can't quite explain, and yet it's still there. It's the part that reaches out to God, and yet you're stuck in day six because as you reach out to God, you're not sure you sense him anymore. You're not sure he's there anymore. You're not even convinced he's still alive within you, and you have this, this emptiness inside. You don't like it, but you seem to be stuck there. Where's that happening in your life? 
Where is it that you wake up in the morning to discover that you don't even like who you are because it's just that emptiness. and You feel like a shell of, of who you really want to be. Whatever your profession, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, work in pharmaceuticals, a teacher, work for the state, whatever it is, I would venture to say that, that you went to school and you were trained in some form or fashion for the job that you do. Most of us, uh, that, that would be true. As a pastor, um, I went to school uh, to a Bible college where they supposedly trained you in all the skills that you would need in order to work full-time in ministry. And there's this, there's this misconception uh, from a lot of people that I've talked to that um, a, as a pastor that I have this special skill and ability to just connect with God in a way that the normal average person does not. That I have this access to God and this knowledge about God that, that you don't have, and therefore I am superior as a pastor. Now, that is the view from the outside looking in. It's the view that as a normal person, you're a five or six on God's scale, and as a pastor, you know, eight or nine, easy, just because of the title, just because of the position. If you want to pray, that's great, God will listen, but if I want to pray, I'll take priority over that, right? And can I tell you that nothing could be farther from the truth? (laughs) It doesn't work that way in God's economy. We're all on equal planes. He, He loves us all. God set it up to where we can all have access to him. And, and yet, there's sometimes it, it's seen that, that pastors should have this special connection, like I've got God on speed dial, if you will. But can I tell you that there are times in my life that, that I find myself questioning God? When my prayers feel like they're just bouncing off the ceiling, and I wonder what God is doing if God's doing anything, and, and I really want to make sense of things, but, but I just can't. And I start to question everything. That's just the way I work. I start to ask, okay, is there sin in my life that God's trying to make me aware of so that I can confess it and make it right and then move on? Was I, was I not nice to that person? Was I not as generous as I should have been? What am I not doing? And it's about doing, and it's about being, and I'm, you know, I just try to, try to do more and, and be more. I think of a a card that my friend gave me back in high school, which reads, if God seems far away, guess who moved? And I'm reminded of that, and and there's questions and doubts and fears and insecurities, and at times it just seems like they overwhelm me. And can I tell you, if you're here today and you've experienced that, or maybe you're here today and you're experiencing things like that right now, can I tell you that's okay? Okay. Can I tell you that that's part of the process? Can I tell you that that God is still moving and God is still working and and God wants to work through you in those moments to accomplish within you what he desires to accomplish? You see, I think it's very important that whenever you experience things like that, when you feel like God is far away or he's absent or he's not even there, that you allow it to do its work. Because if we want a, a true relationship with the risen Christ, with the living Christ, with the Christ who has authority in your life and, and can help you through your life, then I think we have to embrace the Christ who died. We have to embrace the Christ who is in the tomb. If we want a relationship with the risen Lord, we have to have a relationship with the dead Lord. We have to understand that. Christ, at times, when he becomes silent and unresponsive and distant, it's part of the relationship with God. It's just the way it works at times. And that brings us to the tenor, as we look at this in, in four-part harmony. 
the tenor of the story. How do we respond to people around us with this in mind? You see, the danger is to rush through this part. The danger is to kind of to kind of cover this up because we are afraid. Because what if people find out that I feel distant from God? What if people find out that I don't feel like God is listening to my prayers? What if people find out that, that I don't feel as close to God as I want to? What if people find out that I have doubts and fears? What do we do then? And it's in those moments that we have to stop, and we have to wait, and we have to allow God to do the work inside of us so that he can work within us to bring us to where he wants us to be. We can't just pick and choose the nice parts of God that we like. Those parts like day seven. We can't just take those. We have to take all of it. That's the rule. That's the rules of divine resurrection. We have to, we have to do those things. We have to understand those things. And as we go through our life, people need to understand that as well. That we don't always have it all together. Jesus says this in John chapter 12, verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The seeds that he's talking about in that passage, that's you and me. The seed that must die, that's Jesus. He's saying, I must die so that all of you may be here. Jesus gave his life, and that caused more seeds to form. That's why you and I are here today. Without his death, without his silence, without his absence, Without us waiting, it doesn't change. We have to have those things as well. It's not just that Jesus lived. We have to remember that Jesus died as well. The resurrection changes us, but so does his death. So does his silence. So does his absence. Frederick Buecher put it this way. If the life that was in Jesus died on the cross and ended in a tomb... If the love that was in him came to an end when his heart stopped beating, then all was in despair. Christ must die so that Christ can rise. And it's important that we understand that. And it's part of the story. And it's, it's a part that, that I wish we could just gloss over, but we cannot. And so there's a couple of things that I invite you to remember. And I, I want you to remember. So grab your bulletins. And on the back, I want you to fill in these couple of little blanks this morning. The first thing that, that we need to remember is this. Waiting on God is not wasted time. It's not wasted time. It's part of the answer. Waiting on God is part of the answer. And as much as we hate to wait, we will do anything so we don't have to wait. It's part of the answer. Waiting on God is not wasting your time. It's part of the answer that God's trying to give you. And the second thing, in our waiting, God is present. God is still there. He's right there with us. Even if we don't recognize it, God is still there. When God seems dead, when God feels absent, he's not. He's right there with us, even though we don't recognize it. The story uh, continues in Luke chapter 24, and we have to, have to take a peek into day 7. We have to glimpse over there. And I know I said we're going to go slow, but well, we, got, we, we have to do this for this all to make sense this morning. We've got to jump in to day 7. And even though it's day 7 in the story... The people didn't understand it was day seven. They were still stuck in day six because they didn't have the whole thing laid out for them like we do. They were just living it, and they were still stuck in that same day. It starts in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now that same day, and that's day seven, Resurrection Sunday is, is the day they're talking about. Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. 
As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Do you hear the doubt in what they're saying? We had hoped. Their their hope was gone. They had lots of doubt. They were walking along the road. They were talking about Jesus. They were expounding upon his absence and how how he had failed them. And Jesus himself shows up and is walking along with them and and approaches them and starts talking to them and, and asking them questions. And they don't even recognize that it's him. They're so caught up in his absence that they don't recognize that Jesus is there with him. Have you ever had that happen in your life? And maybe not with Jesus, but have you ever been looking for something and you were looking frantically and you couldn't find it? I, I'm a type A person. I, I'm pretty organized, uh, if you know me. I like to color inside the lines, right, and make sure that everybody else does too. This isn't always a good thing. Um, I believe everything has a place and everything should be in its place. And so when I have put something somewhere and then it gets moved or, you know, I, I I freak out just a little bit because it's, you know, beyond my control and, you know, everything should be right where I left it. Now, my wife is like that as well, but to a lesser degree, and that's a good thing for the sake of our health of our family, just so you know. But uh, there's one instance where we were getting ready to go somewhere and it was time to go. It was past time to go, all right? And so we're, we're basically ready, and Michelle's doing the last minute things that, you know, moms and wives do so that they can walk out the door. And And as I am, you know, waiting so patiently and and so humbly and so loving, yeah. Um, Michelle starts going room to room, frantically. She's at the kitchen counter, and then she goes to the dining room table, and then she goes in the living room, and then she goes into the entryway, and she comes back into the kitchen, and she looks on the table, and then she goes in the laundry room, and she comes back in, and I'm like, what are you looking for? She says, my purse. I just had it, and I, I don't know where I put it. And, and I just can't find it. And me, being the loving, gentle, compassionate husband that I am, I lovingly just said, honey, you mean that purse? The one she had strapped across her shoulder. <laughs> you see, the truth of the matter is, Michelle's purse was not lost. It did not fall into some black hole of space and get devoured and never to be seen again. The reason Michelle couldn't find her purse was because she was so frantically looking for it. She was going everywhere it could be, and and she was trying desperately to find it because she was thinking about, I know we're late. we got to go. Why is it that at times we search so frantically for God, but we can't find him? We realize, oh no. I don't feel the same way. Uh, Something's wrong. Something's got to change. And we start to freak out a little bit, right? And what we need to do is, is we need to calm down and we need to take a deep breath. And we need to allow that experience to do what it's supposed to do. The notes from the baseline of our song help us here. Psalm chapter 27. David writes, 
I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Again, in Psalm chapter 33, we wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Wait. Well, we don't like to wait. If God seems far away, do you know what we do, we tend to do? We tend to try to hasten his arrival. And so we turn up our searchlight on him. We decide, you know what? If I'm not feeling God, then there's things I need to do. I'm going to get up an hour early, and I'm going to pray and read the Bible. And if that doesn't work, then the next thing I'm going to do is, I'm going to be nice to that person I don't even like. And maybe that will get it, right? And if that doesn't work, then we're, you know what? Oh, I, I must be needing to give more. And so we give more, or I need to volunteer more. I need to serve, or I need to, and we turn up our searchlight and we start looking for God. And we're like, God, you're going to show up because I'm going to do all these things. And can I tell you, there's nothing wrong with doing those things. In fact, there can be some real benefit in spending time in prayer and reading your Bible and being nice to people and giving and serving and doing all those things. Those are good things. But we need to understand It's not some machine that we can just put in enough quarters and get the right results. God doesn't work that way. We turn up our searchlight and and we're looking for God. And and it's not just a matter of of trying harder or bearing down or, or tightening up our bootstraps. It just doesn't work that way. Because that's the inconvenience of divine sovereignty. That God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And, and we have to live within that because we're human. We're not divine. You see, the truth of the issue is that we do not find God because God is already here. We're just not aware of his presence. We can't find him when he's already with us. We just don't recognize him. God has already approached us once and for all. He's, he's been to us, and he's come to us, and he's welcomed us. And sometimes we are so fixated on his absence that we can't find him when he's right there. We don't see him because we're so worried about his absence, and that's all we can see. And when we get that way, and, and we're, we're talking to other people about, oh, I don't feel God, and all this stuff, and it's all part of the process, we need to embrace it. But we also need to understand that somewhere in that process, God's going to slip up on you. And he's going to be right there walking with you as you're talking about how he's nowhere around. He's like, hello. We have to be willing to wait and allow God to do his work because he's right there, even when we don't recognize him. I heard uh, uh, Ryan Phipps illustrate this point, and, uh, and try as I may, I really wanted to do something different. But as I searched for things, I kept coming back to this point because it, it just makes the point really well. And one of the reasons that, that I didn't want to use this illustration is because this is an illustration that I've made fun of a lot over the years, Okay. It's one that I've heard improvements on, right? Parodies made of this thing. And so there's, there's a lot of, of history for me, and so that's why I didn't want to use it. Whenever I was a kid, there's this poem that uh, invaded the church subculture. And it was, it was very popular, and it, it was one of those things that, that everybody uh, had at one point. And, and companies, as they often do, they figured out a way to monopolize this and make some profit off of this and so they commercialized this thing and and as they did it kind of took away from the meaning of this experience that this person obviously had with God and that they wrote down and and that they shared and 
And so you might remember this poem. And whenever I tell you the name of it, you're probably going to have one of three reactions. Either, oh, no, no, please, no. That's awful, right? Or you could be like, oh, I love that poem. I don't know what you're talking about. That's, that's a great poem. Or you could go, I don't know what you're talking about because you weren't in that flooded subculture back in that, you know, Christian subculture at that time. So uh, I think you'll have one of those three reactions. The poem is titled, Footprints in the Sand. See, there's the reaction I expected. How many of you know that one, right? The amazing thing about the, the footprints in the sand is that you could buy the footprints in the sand coffee mug if you wanted to buy something for, uh, you know, like Father's Day. You could buy the, uh, the, the wall a hanger thing that you could put in your hallway that people could see as they walked down the hallway to go to the bathroom. And, you know, it was in every home in the Midwest. And, or you could, you could buy this decorative table thing. I don't even know what you call that, but you could, you could buy stuff like this. But if, you can, if you've had a bad experience and this is just one of those, you're like, Ugh, can I encourage you for just a moment to separate everything you've ever heard about this poem and just... just Try to act like you've heard it for the first time. Close your eyes if you need to. It goes like this. Footprints in the sand. One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across my mind. In each scene I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there was one set of footprints. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I've noticed during the most trying periods of my life, there have been only one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you the most, have you not been there for me? And the Lord replied, the times when you have seen only one set of footprints is when I carried you. Now, as cheesy as that is, I think there's a lot of truth in that as well. There's a lot that we can draw from that. There's a lot of experience that we can relate to. Jump back to the alto, you're part of the story. And, and here's what I, I would like for you to do. It, it doesn't matter if you're 70 or 40 or 20 or a teenager. It really doesn't matter. Take the story of your life. Take the movie reel of your life and just turn it on and let it play for just a minute. And don't hit the pause button. Don't hit the fast forward button. Just allow it to play and pull up those tough memories. Pull up those things that, that are the most painful for just a minute and allow them to play. Your divorce, your miscarriage, the affair, when your parent walked out on you, the loss of a child, when the doctor said, we found a mask, when you went to work with your laptop and you left with a box filled with personal items, when the accident changed everything, think about your life. Think about those instances in your life that are the most painful for just a minute. And think about this. What if the reason you did not come completely apart at the seams during those experiences was because God was carrying you? What if the reason you're not collapsing right now under the weight and the pressure of everything is because God is there holding you in his arms. What if victory in our lives and victory in our faith looks more like, looks a lot more like endurance than it does bliss? 
What if having God in the midst of our problems looks more like we've reached a breaking point, but we haven't broken than it does that we just don't have any problems? What if, what if the pain and loss and heaviness are the times that God is the most close, and he's the most close because we need him the most close, but the reason we can't really tell that he's there is because the pain is so intense. What if that, in fact, is true? What if God is holding you together right now in ways you can't even imagine as the rest of your world may be torn apart? Jesus promises us in his word that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. And he's either telling the truth or he's a big fat liar. And I choose to believe that he's telling the truth. And I choose to believe that when there's times that God feels far away, that's not his fault. That's mine. Because he's there. It's just a matter of us being aware of his presence. I want to suggest that the death of Jesus and him being in the tomb and, and Jesus' silence and his absence and, and the seemingly waiting that we have to do is all evidence of his great love for us. Romans chapter 8 says this, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> and maybe today you're finding yourself going, I want God to show up. Can I challenge you to just wait and allow God to work in the way that he needs to work within you right now in that moment to change you and to mold you and, and to give you whatever it is that he needs to give you. Don't rush through the process. While you wait, let God work. That's the challenge. Let him teach you what he needs to teach you. Experience what you need to experience. Grow where you need to grow. Because the truth is, God is not far from any of us. We just need to be aware of his presence. Maybe today you need to talk to someone about your time of waiting, and you feel like you're just waiting, and the waiting seems to have no end. Maybe today you need to stop waiting and say, you know what, God? I'm ready to surrender. I've been running. I haven't really been waiting on you. I've been running from you. And it's time to stop and to receive, to experience his life-changing love in your life. Maybe today you just need to wait on the Lord and accept what he's doing in your life. If you want to talk to someone about anything that's going on in your life, we offer this invitation to you. Ian and the band are going to lead us, and, and we will meet you over by the cross. Stand with me. You make your way over to the cross, and we will be waiting for you there.